0: to you all, wherever you may be keeping the feast, it's a pleasure to speak to you at this time, uh, hopefully towards the beginning of the feast, uh, as what we're going to be talking about today pertains to how we keep the feast, how we start the feast to some degree, and spend the whole feast as we go along. And we'll see that as we go along. The feast is a highlight of the year, certainly. It's a time to rejoice. It's a time to spend time with our family and our relatives and our brethren. We're commanded to save our second tithe and enjoy the fruits of our labor. We're foreshadowing a time of great abundance and prosperity in the millennium. All those things are important. And yet, we also know that if we're only absorbed with eating and drinking, with spending times with friends and family of having a nice steak or a nice glass of wine, of feasting, if we're only focused on ourselves, by the time we get to the end of the feast, we're going to walk away empty, won't we? We won't be as fulfilled as we might be. How do we avoid that? Well, by understanding that one of the elements of the Feast of Tabernacles is service. Service. One element that we cannot afford to miss at the feast, which keeps us grounded and focused, and also helps us, frankly, to have a great time and to rejoice at the feast, is service. I'd like to talk about service today. I'd like to talk about our service at the feast, but more importantly, our need to develop a love of service. Do you have a love of service? If you'd like a title... Today, mine is simply the love of service. There are many areas of service at the feast, many things that we have a chance to uh, volunteer for or have already uh, or might still have an opportunity if there are needs that still come up. Without us serving one another, there wouldn't be a feast. It would be impossible to have the feast without us taking care of our needs of serving one another, right? The feast just doesn't materialize out of thin air. Uh, It doesn't happen just by snapping our fingers. Uh, Someone arranges the hall. If we have a meeting hall, that takes place many months ago. Uh, Usually, contracts are signed. Uh, We decide where we want to keep the feast. We register for our site. Uh, In many cases, online, we call up and arrange for housing. Uh, but not only that, someone in our family has to plan for how we will eat for eight days. That's pretty important. Uh, someone has to make sure the car is in working order if we travel by car. Uh, so it doesn't break down on the way there. Someone has to work. Everyone has to work throughout the whole year to save second tithe. So that we have the finances to pay for the feast. When we get there, ushers and setup crews are assigned and crews volunteer. Activities are organized. Uh, It takes organizing for every activity to place. Isn't that amazing? No activity takes place just by snapping our fingers. Uh, It has to be organized. Uh, Perhaps there is a nurse or others who are called in in an emergency. Uh, Song leading, music, piano accompaniment, speaking assignments. The conducting of services. It's all organized. It's all planned. And it has to do with different individuals serving at the feast. So how will you be serving at this year's feast? How are you serving at the feast already? Will you be serving your family? Will you be serving others simply by getting to know them? Will you be perhaps sharing the things that you have by taking out others or sharing your food and sharing the things, your supplies and, and necessities with others whom you didn't know before? If you're a parent, will you, you be taking care of your children to get them ready for church every day? Will you be an usher or on setup or working the lights or sound system? Or will you be a volunteer during a particular activity or contributing in some other way? Many of you who see this may not be at a large site where there are a lot of crews and there may be less organized opportunities for you, but certainly there will be ways to serve in just pitching in where you see a need. That's service. Some of you watching this video may not be able to attend the feast for health reasons or others. You may no longer be able to attend. Maybe you are shut in and you can't go to the feast anymore. Uh, That includes my own grandmother who uh, has health situations, by the way. Hi, Grandma. (coughs) Hope you're having a good feast. But even if you are a shut in and not able to attend the feast, there are ways for you to serve, right? During the feast or throughout the year. Calling others up. Writing letters, writing cards, praying for one another. So we all find ourselves with all kinds of opportunities, especially at the feast, to serve. So now that we're here, now that we're excited to be here at the feast and energetic about it, let's ask the question, why are we serving? Why do we serve? Let's turn over to John chapter 13 and verse 3. John chapter 13 and verse 3 of course, Jesus Christ had the mind of a servant, uh, and we are attempting to follow in His footsteps. John chapter three and verse thir- uh, three. John chapter thirteen and verse three. Starting out, we read Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He was come from God and went to God. He rose from supper and laid aside His garments, and took a towel and girded Himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. We know that Jesus Christ had a love of service. He set that example, which we are striving to develop today. Notice in verse 12, So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. He said, if you know these things, if you know that service is not only the secret, a secret, to happiness in life, but also we can apply it to happiness at the feast. If you know these things about following the footsteps of Jesus Christ, happy are you if you do them. You know, at first glance, it looks like the rejoicing, the eating and drinking, the time off from work, the spending time with friends and brethren... It it appears that that is what makes a happy feast. But Christ said the way to be happy, following in His his footsteps, even at the feast, is to have a foot-washing attitude, a sincere love of service. Now, we're not totally there yet. None of us have reached perfection. Uh, We haven't reached Christ's perfect attitude of service yet, but we're striving to be there. And we're wanting to be there. So ask yourself, what are your motivations for serving, particularly at the feast this year? Let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1. Our motivations are are kind of personal but it's good to think through why we do the things we do, why we want to do the things we do. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 1. He says, For as touching and ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has provoked very many. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that as I said, you may be ready. Now, this is old hat to God's people, right? This is kind of what he's saying. It's, it's superfluous for us to even talk about it. Service, uh, this is a, something that we know about. We've gone over many times. Why do we really need to cover ground again? Or, since we are human... Maybe we still do need to cover these types of things from time to time. We haven't yet reached perfection. We need to think about it. Verse 6, But this I say, he said, He which sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he that sows bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or hesitatingly or of necessity out of compulsion For God loves a cheerful giver. So, we relate this, obviously, to our giving of offerings. But we can also correspond it with our service. God loves a cheerful giver. He wants us to do it from the heart because we want to. Now, just because that's the goal doesn't mean that sometimes we don't do things out of compulsion. Out of the feeling that we... We feel we should, even though we don't feel like it. We feel guilty if we don't do it. Well, you know, that's not all that bad. It's a good starting place to motivate us to do the right things, to get involved, to get moving, even to serve at the feast. We should do it because it's the right thing to do. And yet, ultimately, just like God is not wanting us to just give offerings out of guilt, He wants us to grow to the point where service is not just out of compulsion because we have to, but because we want to and because we love to serve. How are we? Where are we on the continuum of loving to serve? Do we do it just because we have to? Or do we do it because we love to? Another reason why people serve is that their parent, their their peers are doing it. Sorry, their peers are doing it. You know, if my friends around me are getting involved, I'll want to as well. It's peer pressure. Peer pressure is not always bad. Uh, we usually talk about it in a negative sense, but um, it can be a very positive influence. One of the things and concepts at our youth camps is that peer pressure can be a force for good. If you have 99% of the campers at camp going in one direction and have a certain mindset, chances are pretty good that the remaining 1% will follow and, and fall into step as well. People want to belong. They want camaraderie. They want kinship. If our friends are involved in doing something, oftentimes... We will do the same thing. If they're focused on serving, if they have a love of service, chances are we'll get involved because we want to belong as well. God knows this. He made us, He knows how we're wired. Maybe this is even one of the reasons why He commands us to come together every week on the Sabbath and attend the holy days and the feasts every year for that positive peer pressure that He knows we need. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Notice. Hebrews chapter 10, and verse 19, he says, "...having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience or a guilty conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Again, the goal is not to serve just because we feel guilty, but rather because we just love doing it. Verse 23, "...let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promise, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works." The NIV renders it this way. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. We know that iron sharpens iron. We know that we need one another and, and, and being together together Being around others who are doing the right thing helps us to do the right thing. And service is no different. Service at the feast is important. It helps us to enjoy ourselves much more. And oftentimes, when our friends are doing it, we will be wanting to join in as well. You know, service helps us to get our minds off of ourselves and onto the mind of Christ. As we think about helping a person in a wheelchair or opening a door or babysitting uh, for those who uh, have children or some of the teens volunteering to help uh, watch some of the children for an activity, Uh, these are all experiences that if we think about it, as we put ourselves out a little bit and serve and... in in the attitude of washing the feet of one another, we're starting to capture the mind of Christ. And yet, sometimes we need a little nudge from our friends. Sometimes we need a little peer pressure. Hopefully, over time, that develops into doing it because we love it. But in the meantime, a little peer pressure is a good thing. Again, where will you be serving this year? Where are you serving already? And what is your motivation for it? Another thing that motivates us, humanly speaking, is simply being a part of a common goal. We see this in any group that has a work to do, a job to perform, sports teams, uh, musical groups, organizations that work for something bigger than themselves. It's exciting, it's motivating for us to be a part of. And being at the feast is no different. We are a part of something that is a big picture and we can see ourselves as a part of that. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, notice, it's very thrilling to know that we are a part of something that is big, that is moving, that is accomplishing something. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, we read, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, Some pastors, some teachers. The church is organized. There are different responsibilities. And it's organized so that things can get done and that we can all be a part of the program. Now, why is the feast organized? Not just so we can be part of any program. You know, there are wrong programs. There are things out in the world that people get all... Very excited about, but in the wrong direction. Adolf Hitler was able to motivate a lot of people and inspire them with tremendous zeal, if we can use the word inspire in that way, obviously for a very wrong goal. It's not, we're not here just to be a part of a common goal, we're here to be a part of the right goal. The right big picture. What is that right common goal? Verse 12 For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Till we all become like him. Till we all have the perfect mindset that he had. Till we all ultimately are granted the chance to be in His family, have His character, have His mind forever. Developing the mind of Christ, that service-oriented, that service-loving mind. That's why we're here. Verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, every joint serves, The whole, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, and makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The whole body is built up. Why? Because everyone contributes, everyone serves, and the whole program works beautifully. It's a marvelous thing to see the feast run smoothly. In spite of little problems here and there, which are uh, certain to happen, little irritations now and then, We see the feast works very well, not just because we're a part of something bigger than ourselves, but because we are a part of God's program. And the feast plays a pivotal role in that. We are becoming like Christ, becoming to think like Him, and He loves service. Another motivation for people, is for us, is to develop and use our talents and abilities. People serve in order to grow, in order to use their talents and their skills. You know, this is somewhat related to the the last point, as Mr. Weston likes to use the example at camp. When he has an audience of about 180 or so at orientation and he's explaining how camp will run, one of the things that he often does is ask, who is the most important person at camp? And he pauses, and you know, the answer is one might say the camp director, the one speaking at the moment, the one who is in front, up on the podium, directing everyone at the moment. But then he says, you know, if someone throws up in the third row and gets sick and loses their lunch, then now who is the most important person in the room? Suddenly, the priorities change, right? Suddenly, the person who gets a rag, gets a towel, cleans the mess up, is the most important person at that moment. What happens at the feast if we are gathered together and there are several hundred of us or even just several dozen of us, but the toilet's back up? Now, who's the most important person? You know, it may not be the organizer, may not be the speaker, may not be... Whoever is at the head of the org chart, it's whoever can fix those toilets. Without them being fixed, we're going to have a very bad experience at the feast. What about during services, if the electricity suddenly goes out? Or the sound goes out? Who is the most important person at that moment? Well, the person who can fix it. The guys in the sound booth who go and track the... The, the, the wires and cables, and figure out what's wrong and, and fix the problem. The point is that we all have jobs and roles to play. And we as human beings are motivated by the feeling that we can contribute in a unique way. That's a powerful motivation. You know, it seems like this was what drove much of the progress of the original tabernacle back in Exodus chapter 35... Exodus thirty five and, and motivated people back then when it was being built. Exodus chapter thirty-five, everyone having a unique contribution. And Moses spoke unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take you from among you an offering unto the Lord. Whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it an offering of the Lord, gold and silver and brass. The word willing essentially meant voluntary, something that was volunteering their services from the heart. We have a lot of volunteering opportunities at the feast. Verse 6, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and badger skins and shittim wood. And oil for the light and spice for the anointing oil. There are a lot of things to take care of. And for the sweet incense and onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate. And every wise-hearted among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded. This phrase, wise-hearted. According to Strong's, wise can be understood as intelligent or skillful or artful. These people were talented, and they were skillful, and God used their talents in order to put together the tabernacle. Verse 21, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred them up, and everyone who, whom his spirit made willing. And they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation, and for all his service, and for the holy garments." They were motivated. Their hearts stirred them up and they volunteered. There was excitement in the air. Try to visualize what this would have been like as they were building the tabernacle and being involved in it. You know, it's hard for us perhaps to sense the the magnitude of what was going on at that time. But two or three million people perhaps... As this project was coming together, the very tabernacle of God with the gold and silver and onyx and precious stones and articles and engravings donated by people and the rulers and the princes, this involved thousands and thousands of people. When we go to the feast these days, you know, it usually only involves several hundred or maybe several dozen or just a few. And yet, perhaps we can get a small glimpse of the excitement of being a part of something big, a part of of a chance to contribute with our talents, with our abilities, whether it's with music or whether it's with taking care of the sound or whether it's in serving in some other way. Because the feast takes a lot of cooperation, doesn't it? It's exciting to see it all work together. It's exciting to to have a chance to contribute in a meaningful way. <clears throat> and we have that opportunity. We already have, perhaps, for the first, for a few, first few days of the feast, but we have a whole lot of the feasts left over, and there are plenty of opportunities to serve yet ahead. Notice in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, there are many types of skills and, and even gifts that we have to contribute maybe you don't play music or maybe you don't uh, know how to run sound Uh, there are other ways that that we can contribute there are all sorts of different ways that we can make a unique contribution Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, this is in the NIV version, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, acting this way, being this way, thinking this way of loving service. It's not natural, is it? Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good and pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Just as each of us ha- has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. We all have a part to play in the church of God. We all have a part to play at the feast. We don't all do the same thing at the feast. You know, if we were all ushers, if every single one of us at the feast were all doing the ushering, well, what else would go on at the feast? It it, it wouldn't work, right? We all have different roles. Verse 5, So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to faith. Prophesying can be understood just as inspired preaching. God has called some to teach and preach, and that is a service. That's one way to serve. Verse 7, if it is serving, let him serve. You know, the, the word uh, ministry in the King James Version, in its broader definition, just comes from the word diaconia, which means simply to attend to, to aid To serve in in physical needs of others. Of course, we get the word deacon from this. Taking care of the physical needs of others. This is one of the things that Romans 12 is talking about. It's not only a service opportunity, it's a gift from God. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. You know, brethren, a person who can comfort and encourage others, that can be a very special gift. That can be a way to contribute and really help others. You know, not everyone who comes to the feast is happy, is rejoicing, is having a great time. Sometimes we come to the feast and and some brethren are undergoing terrible trials. Some may have left terrible difficulties back home. Some may be still struggling with health problems even while they're at the feast. You know, being one to encourage others is a tremendous way to serve and help. If you have that gift, if you can do that, that's one way that you can contribute. He says, if it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. We have a golden opportunity at the feast to contribute financially by with the things we have, helping one another, sharing our blessings with perhaps others who don't have as much. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. You know, some are given opportunities to be over a department or be over an area and and be involved. Uh, We have tremendous uh, opportunities to have a lot of people involved in organizing things at the feast. Um, We should pour our hearts into it. This is a chance to serve in a unique way. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Well, is there ever a need to show mercy at the feast? You know, maybe by this time yet, uh, no one has gotten on your nerves or you have not irritated anyone else at this early time in the feast. Uh, or maybe it has happened already. Uh, you know, but after a number of days, especially after about seven or eight days living in close quarters, of uh, living with each other in very tight proximity, there will be times when it takes patience to get along, right? And it takes forgiving. It takes giving each other room to make mistakes. It takes us cutting each other some slack, looking over some rough spots. Isn't that service? Isn't that a way to serve? That's what he said. Let him who shows mercy do it cheerfully from a willing heart. You know, just being friendly, just saying hello to those we don't know, that's a way to serve. Just offering a cheerful smile, being the first one to smile when you see someone across the room, that's a way to serve. Looking out for those who don't seem to have anyone to talk to. Maybe the older folks, or maybe the teens, or whoever. Looking around and seeing if someone doesn't have anyone to talk to. That's a, a way to contribute and serve. There are a thousand ways that we can serve to make the feast a success. To help others have a better time. And as we do that, hopefully, we are going even beyond just our own personal development and, and fulfillment of giving a unique, op, uh, unique contribution. But we are also developing the mind of Christ. So do we love to serve? Do you love to serve? Where are we on that goal? Where are we in developing that goal? Notice in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. When we serve one another at the church, at the feast, we're doing far more than just setting up chairs or holding a door or handing out bulletins. We are laying up treasure in heaven. We are really preparing our reward. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, Take heed that you don't do your arms, alms or service before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when you do your alms, Don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. The contrast is between having our reward now or having it in the future. If we are serving from a pure heart, not to be seen, not to have a lot of glory from men, we're laying up treasure for the future. Verse 3. But when you do... Your alms, let not your left hand know what your right hand does. Your alms may be done in secret, and your Father which sees in secret himself shall reward you openly. Verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's what serving does. It prepares our reward in the future. Hebrews eleven 6, I'll just read it quickly, says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So we know that our reward... Of being kings and priests in the kingdom of God is related to diligently seeking Him now, is related to having an attitude of service right now. Not just serving itself, but learning to love service. Learning to have a love for service. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25. This is what Christ talked about. What is leadership for? Matthew 20 and verse 25, But Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many." So this is a fundamental principle of preparing to rule. We know that we will never receive our reward unless we have a serving attitude now. We won't be kings or priests unless we are serving others and the needs of others and taking care of others now. But brethren, let's take a stop for a moment. Could we misunderstand this principle that Christ was Teaching. We are motivated by our desire for leadership in the future. And service now is what prepares us for leadership. But think about it. Is it possible for us to focus so much on our destiny of becoming leaders that we forget to work on just learning to be content and happy in serving? Think about it. I'd like to read from a book that was entitled The Power of Followership by Robert Kelly in this light. He said, Unfortunately, leadership and followership have been stereotyped to the detriment of both. If followers are thought of positively at all, it is as apprentice leaders. This is the thesis of West Point and most bureaucratic establishments. William Litzinger and Thomas Schaefer, two business professors from the University of Texas, posed the following question to a group of officers, most of whom were on the West Point faculty, and many of whom were themselves graduates of the academy. Quote, Since developing leadership is what this place is all about, they asked, how do you go about doing this task? The officers answer surprised surprised the researchers. We began by teaching them to be followers. That's true. We believe that too. However, if we're not careful, we can misapply this. Going on, he says, The thesis of West Point is that before people are allowed a leadership position, they must prove themselves capable of following. Leadership is the reward for good following. Once you pass the grade, you seldom have to suffer followership again. End quote. Now, what is he saying? And how does he apply it or how can we apply it to what we're doing here? We are training for positions in the kingdom of God. Service is a fundamental part of that training. But brethren, could we be guilty of submitting, of following, even serving now, just to get what we want down the road? Just to sort of pick that plum? That reward at the end of the road, the reward to be handed out for services rendered. To be kings and priests in the kingdom, you know, kind of sitting on our throne in our palace, having servants fan us and feed us grapes and rub our feet for a thousand years? Is that what we're here for? Now, I know I'm being a little facetious, but I think it makes a point. Brethren, are we just putting in our time? Are we just coming up through the ranks paying our dues in preparation for a time, as Robert Kelly says, that we won't have to suffer followership or service ever again? Is that our goal? Sometimes we can perhaps get so focused on our desire to be leaders and our calling to be leaders that we forget that our calling throughout the millennium and throughout the 100-year period and throughout all eternity is also to be servants. We call it servant leadership. You know, here we are at the feast. There are a thousand details to be taken care of for this feast even to happen. Many opportunities and responsibilities to serve. We all need housing. We all need food to eat. We all need a comfortable, peaceful place to worship. We all need positive fellowship and recreation with other Christians. All these things are filled through us serving one another at the feast. Well, if the feast is prophetic of the millennium, doesn't this show that the same principle will apply the same things that the saints will be doing in the millennium is serving. People will be needing housing. People will need food to eat. They will need a comfortable, peaceful place to worship. They will need positive fellowship and recreation with other Christians. You and I are being trained to serve and love service now by serving each other so that we can have an attitude of loving service in the future to serve the people that we will be with. I'd like to ask you a question. When does God ever stop serving us? God on His throne, looking down at this tiny little speck called earth, a ball spinning like a top, in the universe. When does he ever stop serving us? When does he ever stop thinking about our welfare? Thinking about our needs, giving us oxygen to breathe, giving us food to eat, something over our head, clothes to wear, protection, warmth? Health? Notice in Psalm chapter one oh four point is he never stops serving us, does he? He never stops taking care of the needs that we have. Psalm 104 and verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great You are clothed with honor and majesty, who covers yourself with light as with a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who lays the beams of His chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds His chariot, who walks upon the wings of the wind, who makes His angels spirits, His ministers a flaming fire, who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. He built our house, didn't He? He made this place that we live on. Verse 10, he sends the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. They they give drink to every beast of the field. The wild asses quench their thirst. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of men, that he may bring forth food out of the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. Brethren, who is serving whom? It says here, God is providing for the beasts of the field, the cattle, the birds. All of these things eat and survive and thrive because He watches out for them. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which he has planted. Who planted the trees? Well, God did. Why? To give nests to the birds, to serve them. Verse 17, where the birds make their nests, as for the stork, the fir trees are her house. The high hills are a refuge for the wild goats and the rocks for the conies. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows his going down. You make darkness and it is night wherein all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their meat from God. Who's serving whom here? God even serves, it says, the wild beasts. Verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all! The earth is full of your riches. So is this great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable both small and great beasts. There go the ships. There is Leviathan, whom you have made to play thereon. These wait all upon you, that you may give them their meat in due season. Notice it doesn't mean that these all wait on God. They all wait for God. They all wait for Him to provide the things they need. Whom is serving whom? You know, when we think we pray and we study and we worship, we are serving God, and we are. But think of all the time, 24 /7, 365 days a year when God is serving us. I mean, we don't even know about it. And He's serving the whole creation constantly to survive, to have air to breathe, food to eat, so we don't go spinning off into space. Verse 28. That you give them, uh, that you give them, they gather. You open your hand and they are filled with good. You hide your face and they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the earth. The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in His works. What makes God happy? Well, His works. In taking care of His creation. Christ said happy are you if you do these things. He was talking about walking and living in a spirit of the love of service. Of foot washing. Not out of compulsion. But because we love it. If we're not careful brethren. We can see that the entrance into the kingdom is the finish line. When all the sacrifice And all the service is over. But actually, it's just the beginning. That's when the service really starts, isn't it? And when it really gets fun. Christ said, happy are you if you do these things. He knows that really loving service is the way to really enjoy life. And that's why developing an absolute love for service is so critical to fulfilling the meaning of the feast... Because that's what we're going to be doing throughout the millennium and beyond. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 18. Notice Isaiah chapter 30. He says, Therefore will the Lord wait, that He may be gracious unto you, and therefore will He be exalted, that He may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is the God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for Him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious unto you at the voice of your cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer you. It's interesting that not only will we be taking care of and serving our brethren in the future, in the millennium, in their physical needs and sustenance needs, but also for their spiritual and educational needs. Notice in verse 20. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not your teachers be removed into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way walk you in it when you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. You know, we sometimes joke about how this might happen. But think about what this is really saying. That the role of the kings and priests, the first fruits in God's kingdom, will not just be to pronounce judgment, to sit on thrones, to issue decrees, but to teach. To teach. And anyone who is a teacher understands the commitment and dedication, selflessness required to teach. It's demanding... It's a taxing and exhausting and frustrating and absolutely exhilarating profession. All of those things wrapped in one. It's an act of service. It's not glamorous. It's not glitzy. It is true service. And that's what we will be doing. Remember, that's the whole mindset that Christ has. And that's what we are developing today. Notice in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. The judge, the, the, the role of a judge in the millennium is going to be an act of service. It says in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Christ will play the role of making decisions, of making binding decisions, of settling disputes among human beings, in fairness, in equity. And we will have a part to play as well as kings and priests. But notice what it's like to be a judge. Exodus chapter 18, verse 13. Here is an example of what it's really like. Moses found out. Exodus chapter 18, verse 13. Of course, when the Israelites came out of Egypt... And as the law was given, was in the process of being given to them, it came upon his shoulders, his responsibilities to make decisions, make judgments between neighbor and neighbor. Verse 13, "...and it came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood by Moses from the morning until the evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that you do to the people? You, why do you sit here yourself alone?" And all the people stand by you from morning to evening. And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me. And I judge between one and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. I'm a judge. This is what I do, he was saying. But Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that you do is not good. You will surely wear away. Now, was this a, just a huge ego trip of Moses? That he had the opportunity to sit and judge between people from, night, from daybreak to nightfall, every single day. Or was it something that was a tremendous burden? It was a true act of service, really, when you think about it. His father-in-law said, you're going to wear away. You're going to wear yourself out, both you and this people that is with you, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to perform it for yourself alone. All these people waiting on his decisions and looking to him. You know, not very glamorous when it happened and it went on and on and on all day long. And a tremendous amount of work and service. It's interesting and ironic that Dathan and Abiram and Korah said that Moses was taking too much on himself when all he had done was serve and serve and serve. Sure appears that Moses had the mindset of the love of service. He had to learn to delegate, but he loved service. He loved serving his brethren. Brethren, we have the opportunity to develop that same attitude And what a powerful thing it is. If we can tap into the attitude of Christ, the mind of Christ, it doesn't come naturally. We have to ask God to give it to us. Let's bring this down to a practical level, though. How do we develop this attitude? Where does it come from? Well, the answer is simple, but it's not easy. Why does Christ serve us? No one has to twist his arm, uh, put him on a guilt trip to take care of our needs. He doesn't do it just for his own personal development or out of peer pressure. Of course not. He does it because he loves us, right? He serves us because he loves us. He cares about us. He cares about our needs. He cares about our concerns. He cares about our problems. Now, let's bring it down to this point. There could be others. But what can help us to develop the love of service? You know, one basic point is simply to love people. To love people. If we love people, then we'll love to serve people. If we love each other, then we will love to help each other. Does God serve us out of love. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. We read something very short but very profound. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. We read, Hereby perceive we the love of God. How do we know that God loves us? Because He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Out of service we know that He loves us because He served us and we are to do the same thing. The way He holds our hand to help get through difficult spots. He's never, never lets us down. He's always there. He's focused on what our needs are. If we are to become like Him, wouldn't it be obvious that we also would be here to develop His same love for each other? For our fellow man. Verse 17 But whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. How can we serve the needs of others if we don't really love them? How would we serve the needs of others if we don't think about them. How would we know what the needs of others are if our minds are not on their needs? You know, God, again, is always thinking about our needs, isn't He? And frankly, in preparation for this feast, think about all the details and needs of everyone here today, all of these eight days, and all of the things that He provides for all of us. All of the things that He has planned in preparation for these days. Well, if God is thinking about all of our needs, how much are our minds on each other's needs? How can we serve each other and love one another if we don't have our minds on each other from time to time? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. Philippians chapter 2 and verse... Verse one, he says, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any bowels and mercies fulfill you my joy. You notice that this produces joy. Paul was happy when he saw his brethren learning to think like God, learning to Be like God. Have the mind of Christ, that you are like-minded. Having the same law, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Brethren, be honest. How much effort and time do we really spend every day thinking about the needs of others? I mean really getting our minds focused on what other people are going through, what other people are thinking about, what problems that they are wrestling with. Even when someone is talking to us, sometimes our minds wander even then, right? How much of our mental power really and mental energy is really focused on others? Probably a very small fraction of of our... Total waking time, right? Face it, most of the time we're thinking about ourselves and our needs. What we believe, what we think, what we're going to answer from what someone just said to us. We need to get our minds on our needs, the needs of others, if we're going to serve them in the future? How are we going to be reigning as kings and priests unless we know the needs of our people? How are we going to know the needs of our people unless we're interested? Are we interested, really, in each other right now? You know, there is a man living today, not a member of the church of God, but who at this moment is a reigning monarch, has been for many, many years, who exemplifies some of the things that we're talking about striving to attain. His name is, of course, King Bumapon, a dulyadet of Thailand. And I'd like to read a little bit about him. I know most of you have heard of him. But it's interesting his example in this light. King Bhumapun, the ninth monarch of the Shakri dynasty of Thailand, is currently the world's longest reigning monarch, having succeeded to the throne on June 9, 1946. The reign is both a historic milestone and a personal triumph. It stands as a a remarkable testament to the role of the monarchy, which has guided the nation for more than 700 years since its birth in the 13th century. But not only has King Bhumapun preserve the continuity of a regal tradition in Thailand, he has also succeeded in enhancing its relevance in an age when royalty elsewhere has either vanished or become irrelevant and anachronistic. The key to that success has been stability, which the monarchy has helped to provide during decades of accelerated political and socio-economic change. During this period of rapid advancement, King Bumapon has reigned. Remarkably, he was not trained for the role from birth, as were most of his illustrious predecessors. And the way in which he rapidly adapted to and more significantly interpreted his unexpected succession to the throne is a measure of his great achievement. The king, with his introspective and compassionate air, is well-versed in science and technology and speaks several European languages. His other accomplishments, playing jazz, painting and photography, have been mostly laid aside so that he can devote more time to his people's welfare. Think about this as we go through this article. Where is his focus? You know, there may be other things that would have been more exciting for him early in life, and yet he laid certain things aside as a servant leader. He said when he... It says, when he ascended the throne, he faced a difficult task. The monarchy had been shaken by two reigns ending unexpectedly. Political and economic problems shortly became manifest, especially growing communist insurgency in the depressed northeast region. Seemingly undaunted, King Bumapon set himself to fulfill tradition and the ancient coronation pledge. That quote, we will reign with righteousness for the benefits and happiness of the Siamese people. End quote. We will reign with righteousness for the benefits and happiness of the Siamese people. Quite a remarkable slogan, don't you think, for a king? And he has shown it means it's more than just words. It really is how he has lived. How how he was to interpret his role was first made apparent in 1955 when accompanied by Her Majesty Queen Sirikit, he made a 22-day tour of northeast Thailand and the most neglected area of the country. The people, most of whom had never seen a Thai king in person before, flocked to pay homage. This pioneering tour was to set the pattern for the reign. Every year, the king spends seven to eight months outside Bangkok touring all parts of the country. His annual journeys by limousine, land rover, and helicopter cover some 50,000 kilometers, many of them over rugged hill country and through remote rural districts. He has visited all 76 provinces most several times and has been seen in person by more of his people than any other time monarch. These provincial tours, usually made in the company of the queen and one or more of the royal children, are frequently of an informality unseen among other Monarchies. He's a working king. It's not a photo op. It's not just for propaganda. He goes there to work. Their majesties are approached by villagers who want to discuss their problems as well as express their devotion. But this is no mere exercise in public relations. The tours serve practical ends. Characteristically, the king is seen on his visits clutching a large-scale map and addressing problems firsthand. Using his knowledge of science and technology, he organizes and oversees development projects. In Thailand, it's interesting that one of the most popular photos of the king, which actually says a lot about him, is one that's kind of a close-up of his profile, deep in thought on one of his provincial visits. And there's a drop of sweat that has just come down his nose. He's leaning forward, pouring over a map and the sweat is the drop is just about to fall off his nose, and the photographer caught it just as it's hanging off the end of his nose. It, you wouldn't think of it as being a very flattering photograph. And yet people love it. The reason is because it symbolizes the fact that he is a king that doesn't mind sweating for them, doesn't mind working for them doesn't mind being in the heat and the humidity to be there to take care of their needs. Brethren, this is a carnal man. And yet he's a a real life king today. Are there things that we can learn? It goes on saying, since... More than 75% of the population lives off the land. Most of these projects that the king puts together are related to agricultural improvement. More than 1,500 have been instigated to date and range from fish farming to artificial rainmaking, from reservoirs to crop substitution programs for the opium-growing hill tribes of the north. In scope, they vary from inexpensive community development to a multi-million dollar irrigation scheme. The benefits are extensive in direct and indirect terms. Communist insurgency in the Northeast, for example, was once rampant, but has now disintegrated largely because their majesties have not ignored their people's problems. Interesting. Brethren, what is our future going to be? It's going to be to be in tune with people's problems. And yet, do we ever ignore each other now? We're all guilty of that, being too caught up in our own things. Sometimes those we should care about the most get lost in the shuffle. The commitment to national welfare, it says, is complete to give what but one instance, Chitlada Palace, the royal residence in Bangkok, is far removed from the fantasy world of some Hollywood director. Any preconceptions you may have from the King and I, musical and movie, are shattered by the knowledge that in the palace grounds is is an experimental farm for dairy cattle and the testing of new strains of rice seed. King Boomupon, really an amazing, carnal, but amazing man. One who has incredible character and integrity, selflessness and love. In that way, someone who we can look up to. And aspire to have a similar attitude in how we will serve our people in the future. That's why we're here. No, he's not perfect. He is not Jesus Christ. We look to Jesus Christ as our standard. But this is an amazing man who, with a carnal mind, has still done some amazing things. Brethren, we are here preparing for our future. And serving at the feast, serving one another, is not just a side issue. You know, sometimes we can think that, well, it's just an option, um, something that we can take or leave. Actually, when we think about what it is and what it means and what we're here to do, it's not something that we can just kind of get over with so we can get on to what we really want to do. It actually is part of the core of why we're here. Taking on the mind of Christ and learning... To really love one another. John chapter 15 and verse 9. John chapter 15 in verse 9. Are you developing the love of service? Am I? Are all of us? Where are we in that development? John chapter 15 verse 9. Christ said, as the Father loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide my love even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. How did Christ love us? How does He continue to love us? Why have we come to the feast? To rejoice, to be with family, to worship before God, to eat and drink and rejoice in our blessings, but it's also a reminder and a workshop where everyone gets involved of the priority that we must place on service and the love of service in this life, not just to focus on ourselves. Galatians chapter 5 and verse... 13, notice, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We are given tremendous blessings and we are told to rejoice And enjoy those blessings. But the feast is not about being self-focused. It's about working together to all develop an attitude of love, of service for one another. To be aware of each other's needs. To do what we can to fulfill them through the love of God being shed abroad in us. It's a high calling. It's quite a challenge. It doesn't come naturally And we have a ways to go, but we're getting there with every week and every month and every feast that goes by. Brethren, let's use this feast this year to prepare for our future. Let's learn and continue to learn the love of service.